All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that truly sets us free. Thank you also, Father, especially for revealing to us your grace and your love. And Oh, Father, it's so amazing how much you've done for us through your Son. May we simply just bow down, get down on our knees as appropriate, and receive your grace always in humility. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for the cause, the primary cause of said humility. That is your own Son's work, our Lord and Savior on a cross 2,000 years ago to cancel out that debt. Thank you for solving the sin problem, Father. Thank you for saving us. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, the difficult passage is Grace and Works, Part 4. What about grace? What about grace? What about truth? Isn't that what we're after here? We want to understand grace and truth? Well, I can begin this way with you. On the topic of grace and truth, here's a lie. Grace accommodates man. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Truth is, grace accommodates God. Man needs to be reconciled to the perfect, holy God. Four letters, holy. Think of that word. I was thinking about it before class, all day today, actually, ever since he got me up this morning and had me studying for this lesson and putting it together. And Holy. Do you understand the immensity of holy? What holy means? And what we are not without Jesus Christ, without God saving us, God choosing to save us. God does not need to be reconciled to man. God's not the one with the problem, right? Last time I checked. So the lie is that grace accommodates man. Truth is that grace accommodates God. Man needs to be reconciled to the perfect, holy God. God does not need to be reconciled to man. More on grace. <clears throat> Man needs to be reconciled to the perfect, holy God. God does not need to be reconciled to man. Yet today's so-called grace gospel supposes that God is on His knees begging man to let Him save them. This is the gospel that we're out there, not we, but the average church even, the one that touts grace. Oh, grace this and grace that and grace this and grace that. What they've basically presented to the world is an emasculated little Jesus who's like one of those sappy little love-struck morons in the romance movies. Please, please marry me. Please let me you know, take my hand in marriage. You can learn to love me later. That's not in the Bible. But that's pretty much what the average Christian church preaches as the grace gospel. Today's so-called grace gospel supposes that God is on His knees begging man to let Him save them. Truth, man ought to be on his knees with a contrite heart begging God to save him. Amen. Begging God to save him. Who's the sovereign in the universe? God is, not man. Man would love to be the sovereign, but he is not. Well, let me put this theologically accurate. And you need to dwell on these things. Grace. God chooses to save man. 
We call that election, by the way. Man does not choose to save himself. God elects man. Man does not elect God. Yet today's so-called, quote, grace gospel supposes that man decides who is saved. In other words, I'm going to say these things right here, God, because they're in the Bible and because I said them, you have to save me. Oh, really? I choose who I save. You don't tell me who I choose to save. You know how I know that? Because I chose those things long before mankind even came about. Before you were even born specifically. I choose, says the sovereign God of the universe. But you see, man doesn't like that. That's not very accommodating, is it? No, it is not. But that's grace. Nowhere in the Bible does it say grace is accommodating to man. It says it's perfect. It says it never fails. It says it's righteous. It says it's gift from above, from God, the sovereign of the universe. Those things are true. But nowhere does it say it's accommodating to man. It's free, but that's different than accommodating. That's where we come up with that term, you know, uh, easy grace. Easy implying accommodating. God chooses to save man. Do not forget that. That is Scripture. God chooses to save man. Man does not choose to save himself. God elects man. Man does not elect God. Yet today's so-called, quote, grace gospel supposes that man decides who is saved. Up here on the board, more on grace. If God is the one who grants repentance, belief, and faith that saves How can man possibly choose to be saved? Think about that. How were you saved? Every aspect of salvation is by grace. Amen? If God is the one who grants repentance, belief, and faith that saves, how can man possibly choose to be saved? He cannot. Do you understand what the Spirit's saying? You do not choose God. God chooses you. He's not down on his knee proposing as a pathetic little sap. He's saying, I am the sovereign God of the universe. You need me. If God is the one who grants repentance, belief, and faith that saves, how can man possibly choose to be saved? He cannot It is by grace alone that God saves man. He is looking for a contrite heart. This is the immensity and fullness of true grace. It is by grace alone that God saves man. He is looking for a contrite heart. This is the immensity and fullness of true grace. Why all this focus on grace after almost a year on the gospel, salvation, and sanctification? It's simple up here on the board. We'll call it Jesus' grace gospel. The true gospel places the onus on humility. The true gospel places the onus on humility, false gospels often place the onus on man's ability to repent, believe, have saving faith. But these, as Scripture says, are gifts from God. You have to reconcile Scripture with Scripture. Not what you want to believe about God because it's accommodating for you or people you love. You have to go to Scripture Nowhere does it say that man saves himself. Nowhere does it say that man chooses salvation. God chose from eternity past who he was going to save. What did he see? Works? 
No. Hardly. No. Filthy rags. Menstrual rags, as the Bible says. None of it's good. What did he look for then? He looked for a heart. He looked for a contrite heart that said, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Can you solve this problem for me, Lord? I'm on my knees. Can you solve this problem for me, God? Please solve this problem for me. I cannot do it. I know I'm wretched. What just so happens, my child, I have solved that problem. I, God, came out of heaven, became a man, died on a cross, paid for the sins. All you have to do is accept that, me, my son, as Lord and Savior, and I'll do the rest. I need you to understand that this is what your situation is. This is what you were born into. You were born depraved. And the whole idea is that understanding that, understanding that in humility takes you to a place where God says, great, now I've got you. I will give you belief. I will give you repentance. I will give you saving faith. I'll give it all to you. But if I see arrogance, nothing. God gives grace to who? The humble. No one can come to me. Listen to this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. Let me give you a little bit. That's the Greek word, helko, up here on the board. Draws. Strong's concordance. Drag. Pull. Pull. Persuade, unsheath, in context, refers to God's design for salvation by grace. Even the initial so-called coming to Jesus in John 6.44 is a gracious provision from our sovereign God. Ephesians 2.8-9, most of you know that. Again, this is what it means to be drawn. God draws those to Himself. In other words, if He doesn't choose you for salvation, guess what doesn't happen? You're not drawn. This is what Scripture says. God says, I choose. You don't quote any Scripture and tell me, like the Pharisees, Lord, Lord, didn't we, blah, blah, blah. I never knew you. But we, I never knew you. You can do all these things all you want. You can try to make the letter of the law. But I choose. This is my game. I'm sovereign, not you. Do you get it? This is what the Spirit's trying to teach us. He's saying, let's, let's throw out all this other garbage about some, about some idea that grace is somehow accommodating. Drag, draw, pull, persuade, unsheath. In context, refers to God's design for salvation by grace. Even the initial, quote, coming to Jesus is a gracious provision from our sovereign God. As I've been teaching you for a very long time now, where does that leave the person regarding salvation then? I mean, if, if everything's by grace, believing, Repentance even, faith, everything. Where does that leave us? God's looking for a contrite heart. That's where it leaves us. He says, I'm going to look in, and I'm going to see either arrogance or humility. And that's it. You mean that's it? You mean it really is all about humility? Yep. What else is there? <laughs> Honest to goodness, what else is there? In light of God's magnificent grace, where does it leave a person regarding salvation? In light of God's magnificent grace, it leaves them at the only place where God is able to, with His own integrity, help them. Humility. The arrogant in this world believe that they can demand salvation from God while beginning and continuing in a state of arrogance. 
The arrogant people in this world believe that they can demand salvation from God while beginning and continuing in a state of arrogance. They quote things like, it says right here, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, then I guess we should just throw the rest of the scripture out then if it's that simple. I guess if that's all of it, I mean, that really leaves things open for conjecture, doesn't it? Well, what does believe mean? Geez, you know, I guess I'll just speculate. Oh, I believe that he died and was raised. I don't believe he's my Savior or, or my Lord or, you know, even God. But someone told me that if I believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, then I'm saved and I don't have to go to hell. So that's what I believe. Well, what about the rest of Scripture? What about honest to goodness? What about the rest of the Scripture? We have to take all of it. And we have to learn to reconcile all of the inspired Word of God. And what you'll find is exactly what I'm teaching you this evening. That grace is not accommodating. The sovereign God chooses who He desires to save. And He looks at a person's what? Heart. Not their works. None of that. What do I see? Do I see a contrite heart? The arrogant person says, well, I can hedge my bet. I'll, you know, like a lawyer. This is what an attorney does, right? They take the letter of the law and they screw with the spirit. That's what arrogant people do. They take the letter of scripture and they mess with the spirit. They say, see, it says right here. God, just in case you forgot God, says right here. God says, I look past all of that. I see your heart. And you're arrogant right now. Just the way you're approaching me is arrogant. Look it. Salvation is God's choice, not man's. You have to understand this. This is what Scripture says. No one comes to Him unless He draws them. God elects. God chooses. God gives grace. God saves. Salvation is God's choice then, not man's. God chooses to save those who He desires. Man does not say to God something stupid. I believe, therefore you must save me. This is not the interaction God's looking for. I believe X, Y, and Z. Therefore you have to save me. That's what an arrogant person says. Let's make God a puppet. Just like a lawyer does. Who did that? You bet Satan did it. Did he really say? Man does not say to God, I believe, therefore you must save me. God is not submissive to man's free will. God sees the heart of man and chooses to save the humble, for he loves a contrite heart. So says Scripture. For example, Psalm 51, 17, Isaiah 57, 15, 66, 2, Jeremiah 44, 10, John 14, 23, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5. For starters. Go to Psalm 51, 17. You have to understand this, my friends. Salvation is God's choice. You see, what's happened in modern Christianity is we come begging with a gospel Please choose for Jesus. We can deal with the other stuff later, but please choose for Jesus. <laughs> and we make it, we make, look, we make man the sovereign in the equation when it's God that chooses. Wow, that's Tashuka. Wow. Incredible what man tries to do. And all the while he's using all the right language and even quoting Scripture. This is how evil Satan is. Satan is brilliant. Knows if he can get grace, he's got you. Psalm 51, 17, God loves a contrite heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That's what God's after. Not some garbage sacrifice of your 
tongue, your time, your energy to try to force God into saving you. God's looking at the heart. You have to understand that. Go to Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah 57, 15. He goes right by all the garbage, do you see? Right by all the, the, the little subtle works. The little subtle works. The, probably the most subtle one that I've had to reconcile in my own soul as of late is the idea of believing even. Believing even. To believe even. Which brings about saving faith. If that's even a gift from God, where does that leave us? The subtlety of a perversion of grace says, well, I'm in control because when I say I believe, I control God and then He has to save me. Wrong, wrong, wrong. If He sees a contrite heart, a humble heart, by grace He'll give you even the ability to believe. This is... Amazing, supernatural stuff, folks. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on high, on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God loves a contrite heart. Go to Isaiah 66, 2. Isaiah 66, verse 2. So we're just surveying Scripture right now. What does God look for? After all this work we've done, we've been at this a year, guys. After all this groundwork on the gospel, salvation, and sanctification, all those things aside, what is grace? And how does it affect salvation? How does grace apply in salvation? Isaiah 66, 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Hmm. Go to, um, I'm going to skip a verse there. Go to John 14, 23. John 14, 23. Just so you don't think that all the contrite verses the humble or the humility verses are in the Old Testament. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Impossible to abide in the sphere of love without humility, without a contrite heart, without a repentant heart, without a grateful heart. All these things should sound very familiar from our last year of labor. Go to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I believe that there's a lot of people out there that use these two passages to muck with grace in a horrible way, crippling it, making God, or making man the sovereign over God making grace uh, accommodating. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. That's humility. Go to James 4.6. James 4.6. <clears throat> James 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, how were you saved? We just saw that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. How were you saved? By grace through faith. And who does God give grace to? The humble. So what do you think God's looking for? A heart. Think about that, folks. God chooses to save who 
those who he desires. Man does not say to God, I believe, therefore you must save me. God is not submissive to man's free will. God sees the heart of man and chooses to save the humble, for he loves a contrite heart. That's what true grace is, my friends. That's the fullness of grace. That's the, the, the true bookends of grace. When it comes to salvation, it's all grace. And do not believe for one moment, just because someone says, I teach grace, that they're actually teaching this grace. That's the perversion. Because Satan's really good at twisting definitions and emasculating Jesus Christ and therefore grace. As I've been teaching all last week, and Scott did a nice job recover, or, uh, recapping it on Tuesday, the idea that God saves you means He delivers you from that which you were born in, which is the sovereignty of sin itself. Not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin even. And then ultimately, the very presence of sin. That should sound familiar too from our little sanctification salvation graphic. God's perspective, man's perspective. Remember that, the three phases? That's God's grace. All of it includes all of it. If He's going to save you, He's going to save you. We call that theologically efficacious. It means His grace is effective. That's what efficacious means. So the fancy word on the board, efficacious grace. God loves a contrite heart and so gives grace to the humble. Every component of salvation is completed by the efficacious grace of God. That leaves man in the, let's call it the starter state. I didn't know what else to call it, but I hope you know what I mean. This, this point, you know, the crossroads, if you would, the, 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 the place between arrogance and humility, however you'd like to look at it. This leaves man, I'm thinking theologically here, this leaves man in the, quote, starter state of humility or arrogance regarding sin and the need for a Savior. You see, what doesn't make any sense once you understand the whole of Scripture, once you understand all of grace, is why anybody would say that repentance or believing isn't part of the gospel, the good news. To me, it's really good news that God says, I'll give it all to you. I'm just going to look for a, a humble heart, a contrite heart. And when I see it, I'll give it all to you. That says to me, just like Scripture says, it's a greater grace, like James 4, 6 just said. It's a greater grace, a grace that includes believing, repentance, faith that saves, all of it. I'm going to save you. I'm looking for something, though. What's he looking for? A humble what? Heart. I'm going to look for a contrite, humble heart. When I see it, I'll give you everything to save you. You see, if you leave out components of what salvation is, listen, my friends, it's impossible not to repent and be saved. It's impossible. It's two parts of the same coin. Repentance, faith, repentance, faith. It's the same thing. You've got to turn away from that to turn to this, right? It's impossible. But if you think that God doesn't apply or supply the grace for repentance... If you think that's a separate issue, all of a sudden it becomes, whoa, that sounds like works. That sounds a little bit like works. Yeah, it does when you don't understand the fullness of grace. Of course it does, because now it's outside of the realm of salvation itself, outside of God's grace, supposedly. That's the perversion of grace that's so accommodating. Do you understand? Just think about it for a second. If I start teaching you a grace that says, don't worry about repentance, don't worry about the Lord, just believe this stuff and you can be saved, we can deal with that stuff later. What did we just do to grace? What did we just do to grace? We left it, we, we hacked it up. We said, no, this doesn't, God, God's not able. His, his grace isn't sufficient somehow. Somehow we left some things out. Oh, but we like that because without repentance, I never have to say, He's my Lord. I can stay in this, I can abide in sin and still get a free ticket to heaven. Oh, I like that a lot. 
You mean I can still stay in my old life, keep the old self? Because repentance is something else that maybe I can deal with later. And somehow he's going to save me, but not unto the Lord and Savior, just somehow a little less Savior. Someone that gives him a free ticket to heaven. This is the grace that's being peddled, my friends. You may not see it. Some of you are going to, some of you, are going to, you know, I didn't really see it this way. But some of you do. I know you do. And I know you've been fooled. As have I. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm blaming myself. Do you understand? Anytime I've ever wept up here, it's because stuff like that. God's timing, right? But here's what I know from Scripture regarding efficacious grace. God loves a contrite heart and so gives grace to the humble. Every component of salvation is completed by the efficacious grace of God. That leaves man in a, whatever, a starter state of humility or arrogance regarding sin and the need for a Savior. God's grace is ubiquitous. Think about it that way. It's, every, it's everything. It's ubiquitous, end to end. Particularly when it's viewed in terms of salvation. Up here on the board, efficacious grace. God saves a person from sin. Not just the penalty of sin, but also the power, dominion, and ultimately the very presence of sin. We saw this in Romans 8.30. And these whom he predestined, before you were even born, in other words, he called. God chooses you. That's election, calling, elected. God chose you. Predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, the entire salvation, the whole plan of salvation from God's perspective is all by grace. He does it all. There's no part, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that man can even attempt to lay claim to. So, at salvation, if you leave any part of what the Bible describes as part of salvation out, you've perverted His grace. You've hijacked salvation itself. And that's what He's been saying. For people that believed unto that kind of a gospel, they have to think, what is it that I believe? So, before we get into that any further, reflect for a moment. <clears throat> what was the problem with the Pharisees? I mean, they certainly were smart, right? I mean, there were other Jews that believed. What was the problem with the Pharisees? Simple. They were arrogant. And they wanted to be in control, even of God. Do you see this? They wanted to control God. They figured that if they could do the law, they would be guaranteed eternal life. You see, they made God their puppet, didn't they? They said, now we got you. We have the law. We'll just obey the law, and then you have to give us eternal life. You have to save us. What did, what did Jesus call these people? Vipers. Why? Because they were so arrogant. The thing he hated the most was arrogance. He could deal with prostitutes and tax collectors and people ripping their shirts saying... Please save me, Lord. I am a wretch. He loved that because that was ripe soil. But you can't deal with somebody who doesn't have a contrite heart, who's trying to make a puppet out of God. That was the problem with the Pharisees. Same with every arrogant person, even today. They want to control God, even. They want to read a little bit of this and say, I got you now. It says right here, and the Lord says, I never knew you. I see your heart. Your heart is gross. It's dark. You think you can hedge bets. You think you can control my father even. This is ridiculousness. Shoo. But is this not what's being taught from pulpits even? Is this not the gospel that we're presenting as a country even on as a whole? The so-called grace movement? This is what we're teaching people? Some scrawny little emasculated Jesus on his knee? Please be my bride. I don't think that's Jesus at all. You find that guy in the Bible, and I'll come sit under you. That's not Jesus at all. Jesus was 
the man. And he made no mistakes about anything. Did he love? Like nobody's business. Who can understand his love? But he didn't compromise. He never accommodated. He said, if you don't want me, you don't have me. Have it your way. But this is my father's grace we're talking about. I came to solve the problem. You're not going to make a puppet out of me or my father. These are the kind of conversations he had with the Pharisees. These are the kind of conversations uh, folks like us have with arrogant people. You don't get to dominate God. You don't get to choose even which parts of grace you include in his plan for salvation. Because anything you leave out leaves the rest up to you. And you, it's so messed up because people that preach grace say, oh, it's works, it's works. No, you're teaching works. You're just using grace everywhere. You're teaching works because whatever you leave out of the ubiquity of God's grace is left to you. Well, that makes me in charge then, doesn't it? I get to decide. See, the Pharisees, like so many, figure if they can do these things, they can control God. Look, I was thinking about this way. God is not on trial. Man is. Do you understand that? God doesn't have any problems. (laughs) He's perfect. He's holy. God's not on trial. We don't go, hmm, impress me. Suitor. Next. You know, like a, like a little bratty little girl would be like, next suitor. Why? Doesn't that sound like the average prostitute relig- spiritual person nowadays? Give me the one I like. No, I don't like that. I definitely don't like that. It's the real Jesus, right? I definitely don't like that Jesus because he's way too pushy. <laughs> he's way too demanding. I like this little emasculated queer. You know, like the average guy nowadays? I like this little candy guy over here. The guy with no backbone, with, with no integrity, with nothing. I like that guy. Just give me, his, give me his body parts and his paycheck and we'll be good. That's all I want. <laughs> Too grotesque? That's the world. What am I talking about? The world doesn't, do you understand what the Spirit's saying right now? The world doesn't want God's grace. They don't. They don't want His grace. They only want the, the, the goodies bag. Call it grace. I'll put a big G on the front of the little bag. But I want to be able to go like a little candy shop and go, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm. But no, leave that other stuff out. This is the candy I want. Make sure you get the big one. Make sure you get the big lollipop that says heaven. Yeah, that one. God is not on trial, man is. The Holy Spirit convicts man of this very thing, and many, like the Pharisees, reject it. Up here on the board. Efficacious grace rejected. The Pharisees are a great example of people refusing to believe the Holy Spirit of God. That's right. God's... You know, God just didn't operate through Jesus Christ. I mean, you get the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit involved in the plan for salvation. Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Helper. He's going to convict everybody of this thing. The Pharisees are a great example of people refusing to believe the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit will press into a person regarding the sin issue. If a person responds humbly... The Spirit will impress upon them their need for the Savior. Contrarily, if a person responds arrogantly, they blaspheme the Spirit. In other words, they call him a liar. That's what blasphemy of the Spirit means. Jesus finally got fed up. And you see that in Matthew 12 and 13, that transition point in his ministry. He says, enough, enough. You didn't call me a liar, but you will not call God the Holy Spirit a liar because that's his ministry to convict you of the things that I'm standing in front of you for, concerning. That's the blasphemy of the Spirit. You cannot call God the Holy Spirit who has a special ministry of convicting individuals of the gospel truth. You cannot call him a liar. Matthew 12, 30 
to 37, Hebrews 10, 29. Go to Matthew 12, 30. We're going to look at that. So efficacious grace can be rejected. And my greatest fear, if you haven't picked up on it yet, as a shepherd, is in knowing that there's not, this isn't black and white. In other words, it's not, you know, Pharisees and believers. There's not the ultra-arrogant and the, you know, the humble. There's this continuum in between. And only God knows who He chooses to save. What I'm very afraid of, very, very afraid of, is that someone has been deceived and believes they're saved and they're not. That is my great fear right now. Not just for you, for the whole world. That people in so-called Christianity have been sold a, a, a lemon for a gospel. Matthew twelve thirty, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, you see how that is? If you're with me, you're with me. If you're not, you scatter. Some people didn't like Jesus, so what did they do? They scattered. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. You see? You cannot call God the Holy Spirit who convicts a person of the gospel, the whole of it. You're a sinner and you need a Savior in brief. You cannot tell Him He's a liar because that's the last frontier. You can call me a liar, you can call one of the people in here a liar, but you cannot call God the Holy Spirit a liar. And God the Holy Spirit reaches the deepest, deepest recesses of a person's soul. Even plums the depths of God. And says, is this a fit, Father? Is this a fit? Is this the heart you're looking for? Yes. Boom. Saved. Believe. Repent. For saving faith. Good to go. Well, what did you see, Father? Humility. Blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man, out of his evil treasure, what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified. In other words, good luck with that. And by your words, you will be condemned. Do you see the context, the audience? I hope so. They're a great example of individuals who chose to reject God's efficacious grace. Either you believe all of it, you can't pick and choose. The other verse, go there, Hebrews 10.29. This is what the Spirit's been saying. It really, in truth be told, folks, is a greater grace. It really is a greater grace. But man, in his desire is to shuka, to dominate God even, doesn't want all of God's grace. That's what it comes down to. He doesn't want all of God's grace. Hebrews 10.29 How much severe a punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So we know, I've been teaching you this, that the same Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is the Spirit of also what? Grace. He's going to convict you of what? The fullness of God's grace. He's going to say, you're a sinner and you need a Savior. You're under your, your, your dominion, your, however that person has it articulated to themselves through God the Holy Spirit. A lot of people don't have the language that I use from up here to describe these things. Whatever that thing is that happens in a person's soul, God the Holy Spirit will convict them. 
and say, you're a sinner. You're living. You're spiritually dead. There's nothing good in you. Because here's the holy God. And if you think you measure up anywhere near him, you're crazy. So you have to first understand the God of heaven is way over here. He's holy. And you're way over here like a filthy menstrual rag. What are you going to do? I'll just march my way to heaven. Give me a little grace. Hey, give me the ticket in case I don't make it. <laughs> you know, it says heaven. I'll jump on the train, you know. Just make sure I have the ticket. And then I'll, by my own free will, I will trudge out of this thing because I refuse that part of grace. I'm speaking like a man. I hope you understand. This never happens. But this is what some suppose happens. They get to hack up grace and say, yeah, you can get the ticket, but he's actually not going to change you. He's going to leave you there. And he's going to let you kind of trudge out on your own. Sounds like evolution to me. That's an insult to the spirit of grace. An insult to him. You see, God's grace functions perfectly across all three persons of the Godhead up here on the board. When God chooses, this is efficacious grace received, when God chooses to shut a phone off, <laughs> he says, Scott, nice beard, but shut the phone off. <laughs> you probably got to break that one in the parking lot. Efficacious grace received. Okay, we had it rejected before. When God chooses to save someone, actually, it's already completed from God's perspective. I don't want any emails, so I'm speaking as a man. When God chooses to save someone, His Spirit baptizes them into union with His Son. He makes the believer a new creature, totally changed. Not a walk-out-of-the-mud guy, not a something that can be dealt with later, literally a new creature, brand new. Not an improvement, not a buff job. Take the rust out. Shh, Mako. No. Leave that thing behind. Brand new. Brand spanking new. So awesome, so righteous that that same new creature is going to heaven while that decaying body just falls into the grave. But is that a discussion that the average gospel evangelist is presenting nowadays? Nope. Nope. Want a free to Oh, please, Jesus, this little scrawny little wimp. Please take my hand in marriage. You can learn to love me later. Was that Jesus at all? No, that's not Jesus. Jesus didn't say you can learn to love me later. He said, take me or leave me. If you want to follow me, you have to reject that self. You have to lose that life to gain this one. He didn't say you get to keep that one and walk out of the mud and I'm going to add unto and this thing. He said, I'm going to change you. That's the salvation plan by grace. So he makes a believer a new creature, totally changed and indwelt even by the Holy Spirit, by all three, but we're focusing on the Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit whose ministry expands tremendously for that person. Reference Romans 8, 9, uh, 8, 9 to 11, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 2 Timothy 1, 14. Go to Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, 9. <clears throat> it's very easy, honestly. Once you understand the fullness of God's grace, the Bible reads so pure and so easily and so matter-of-factly that it truly is a joy to read. And you're no longer stumbling. I'm not going to say that there's not going to be historical events or, you know, little, um, you know, rituals, say, in the Old Testament. They're kind of like, what is that? You know, this kind of, not that kind of stuff. I'm talking about the actual meat and potatoes of the Bible. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, if, what? If, indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, if He doesn't, you're not. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him 
who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. How about, uh, let's see, go to 2 Timothy 1.14. 2 Timothy 1.14. I can't believe I'm out of time. I'm literally maybe a, th- a little over a third through my notes. Hmm. 2 Timothy 1.14. God, through the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us, the treasure which, or excuse me, God, through the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Look, if you truly are saved and you have the gospel, what do you think the spirit of grace is doing right now? He's saying, listen, my friends, this is the most precious thing you have ever been given. The gospel. Literally, the most precious. Guard it. If you don't have it all right, then this is why we're here. Nobody's got it 100%. That's why I hope you take that with it. I hope you understand that as harsh as I am, I'm never harsh against uh, people unless I think they're being specifically um, antagonistic to God. It's the doctrines. I hate false doctrines. I hate them. Why? Because they misrepresent my Lord. And so when I see them, I hate on them. I'm not hating on the people. Heck, you know for a fact, if you, all of you, you know I've taught some of them. So I'm not hating on any people. I hope you realize that. I hate on bad doctrine, though. So God, through the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us, the the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So receiving efficacious grace, again, up here on the board, when God chooses to save someone, His Spirit baptizes them into union with His Son. He makes the believer a new creature, totally changed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, whose ministry expands tremendously for that purpose. On the baptism of the Spirit, go to Acts 11.16. Acts 11.16. Just a little side note on the baptism of the Spirit since I mentioned it. Acts 11.16. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will be placed into union with Christ even. The Holy Spirit is right there in saving grace. Now let's compare, I mean, he is the Spirit of grace after all. Let's compare that to our previous point, again, up here on the board. The, this is efficacious grace rejected. The Pharisees are a great example of people refusing to believe the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit will press into a person regarding the sin issue. If a person responds humbly, the Spirit will impress upon them their need for the Savior. Contrarily, if a person responds arrogantly, they blaspheme the Spirit. It means they're calling him a liar. Now that, compared to this reality check back to grace, efficacious grace, God's work never ends up empty. This is a plug from Tuesday evening's class. God's work never ends up empty. By grace, he gives the humble faith, which always produces something. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. John 8, 31 to 32. Big question mark. God sees the heart. So, I've got to pick a spot now. Let me ask you this. I guess maybe this is a good spot. Regarding efficacious grace, instead of asking the wrong question, will a believer produce fruit? I actually think that's a bad question. I think it's a question from Satan himself. I really do. I think it's a misdirection. The question is not, will a believer produce fruit? Because that gets you thinking about, well, let me look at them now. Let me get the wrong motivation generated even. The right question is, honestly, why wouldn't they? Honestly, just stop. Say, 
Not will they, but why wouldn't they? <laughs> it's almost a st- when you look at it from that perspective, it's almost a stupid question. If God says, I'm going to completely change you, I'm going to make you a new creature, it's a stupid question to ask. The real question is, why wouldn't they? I, I mean, they're in love with Jesus Christ. They're, they're married. They're betrothed to the Lord. They've been changed. They're a new creature. That new creature doesn't sin anymore. That thing does, this thing. But this one doesn't. It can't. It adores God. It adores righteousness. It adores obedience. So it's a stupid question. Will they? The better question, honest to goodness, the better question is why wouldn't they? If they've been changed, if you believe the theology that's in the Bible, the bigger question is why wouldn't they? Especially since Jesus himself said they would. I mean, that's the right question. See, the problem is this, folks. Jesus' own words don't fit in today's perverted gospel. That's what it comes down to. And that's what man has engineered. He has engineered even taking the four first books in the Bible called the Gospels. Ow! Some have used dispensationalism. We've been over this, whatever. But somehow, the words of our Lord and Savior, you know, the Gospel of Him, have been removed. As if they didn't apply anymore. It's incredible. But it's also accommodating. Isn't it? Because Jesus is the one who said, you got to drop that to get this. you got to leave that to follow me. I don't like that. I want to control God. I want to choose. I'm going to muck it up a little bit. I'm going to dice it up. And I'm going to come up with a different gospel that has a different Jesus from a different spirit. And you see, then the, the Jesus in the Bible doesn't fit into proper theology, and so you have to come up with another one. And you know what happens, folks? Been there, done that. You know much how, you know much, I, I'm, I say this in complete humility, I'm an intelligent guy. Yeah, I'm an intelligent guy. It gets really hard. Honest to goodness. When Jesus doesn't fit into your theology... All of a sudden, what should be simplicity and purity of devotion to Him becomes really hard. And days of studying and hours of studying are not revitalizing. They're wearying. Even Solomon said, and I'll leave you with this at the end of Ecclesiastes 12, I think it's 12, I don't want to quote, maybe 12, 12. The dedication to too many books is wearying to a person. What do you think he was talking about? You know what I believe he was talking about? Listen, drop the commentaries. Drop the commentaries. Those of you who make a habit of going into commentaries and reading this person and that person, this person, that person, most of you aren't qualified. I don't mean that in any wrong way. But I'm going to tell you this from a qualified perspective. None of those commentaries actually agree. This is between you and the Lord. Do not discount this gift. This is a spiritual gift, a grace gift to you. Do not discount this one. But when it comes to commentaries, the best commentary you got, guess who? You ready? Jesus. You want to know about commentaries? You want somebody to make it simple for you? Read Jesus. Drop the commentaries. Drop your little side studies. Read your Bibles. So many people, I don't know what the deal is. It's almost like people have a morbid curiosity for stuff they have no business drumming up in the first place. Everybody's speculating about this, that, and the other. Everybody's online reading this guy and that guy and this woman and that woman. God forbid. To what end, I ask you? To what end? Jesus, you see... His own words don't fit into today's perverted gospel. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads.
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take it out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.